Brian Philbrook noticed that there's only two points today. Um, I did not feel the need to force a third point. It just didn't make sense. But fear not, you'll get enough, plenty of sermon anyway. So, all right, they have filtered out. We're in Colossians chapter 4. We're coming towards the end. And uh, we're actually going to look at verses 12 and 13, but we're going to read uh, 10 through 17 again, just to give us a little bit of context there. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Paphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heriopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I, like probably most pastors on a Sunday morning, feel woefully insufficient for the task. But you reminded Judah after the exile that the promises they received would not be accomplished by Judah's might and power. They would be done by your Spirit. We need your Spirit to illuminate, illumine the Scriptures, to apply them to us, to enable us to believe them, to sanctify us, to stir us up worship. And so may He do these things and more through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. One of the old jokes, of course, is that pastors work one day a week. And I know that most of you don't believe that joke to be true, although there are a couple guys who might do it that way. I thought I'd kind of just give you a glimpse of a week in my life I'm not sure exactly why. I kind of know why, actually. So, you know, let's start with last Saturday. That's Sunday, rather. Sunday school, worship service, spending time in community group, uh, leading the group, and then spending some time relaxing over dinner and uh, sharing some conversation with people. Monday, coming in maybe a little bit late because of the night before, but nonetheless, coming in, working on the liturgy for this morning, uh, starting to do some preparation for um, my teaching schedule for the rest of the week, started some new books, it's always a plus in my book, okay? Tuesday, kind of coming in and beginning the process of sermon preparation, but then something went a little haywire, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. Well, hey, that happens. So I spent a lot of time on the phone that day with some personal ministry, some uh, one-on-one conversation uh, as well in, in personal ministry, so it doesn't always go the way we think it's going to go. 
Wednesday, what did I do Wednesday? Study, mostly study for the sermon, uh, looking at some books that I've read and some new ones, trying to continue to think. I had an appointment, I thought, <laughs> that I went to and didn't have, so I got to sit in a restaurant for an hour thinking, which was nice. It was a nice break. Thursday, the actual writing of the sermon, and then uh, some time finishing off some reading, and then in the evening coming and, and uh, doing uh, the men's, uh, men's group study, leading that. Saturday, three hours, three and a half hours, membership class. It's a busy week. Not every week is like that. Lots of weeks are much easier than that one, but this was sort of a, a busy week. All of these things are important, but what you find when you're in the ministry is that all of these things often are insufficient. They're necessary, they're important, but they're really insufficient to do, to accomplish the real tasks that you're seeking to accomplish in ministry. There's something else that needs to take place. The big idea this morning is that Christ matures his people through prayer. As we start this, the first thing I want us to, well, one of two main things I want us to consider is that Jesus places a burden on the heart of godly pastors. As we've seen already, Paul is working his way through the ministry team and uh, you know, in writing as he's concluding this letter to the Colossians. And today we're going to focus on this individual, Epaphras. He's the only one we're going to look at. And we, of course, know, as they know, he, he brings it up. Epaphras is one of you, meaning that he is from the region, the, uh, in the province of Asia that the Colossian church was in. That in fact, he was probably from that particular city as well. And as we see in the first chapter of this, that he is the one who planted the church. Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 1, Just as you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And so Epaphras was most likely converted, as I mentioned way back then, if you can remember, most likely converted in, by the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. He spent time with Paul, most likely was discipled by Paul, and then when Paul left the region, he went to places like Colossae, Laodicea, and Heriopolis to bring the message of the gospel. He was a church planter. And that short time in which he was uh, mentored under Paul in uh, Ephesus, he became suitable for church planting, and he did it. He was one of them. And as a result of that, they know him, they know his character, and they know his message. Paul, in a sense, had expanded his ministry to places like Colossae through men like Epaphras. Paul endorses Epaphras. He throws this in, that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. He's not Paul's servant, okay? It's not about Paul, it's about Christ. And so Paul reminds them that this man, Epaphras, who is known to them and who served them, is ultimately a servant of Christ Jesus. And I kind of go, wait a minute. He's already said that. Why is he saying this again? Why does Paul feel the need to kind of repeat himself in this? Remember, he's 
our beloved fellow servant in chapter 1, verse 7. In a sense, what Paul is doing here is, as we're finding, setting Epaphras apart from the false teachers who have kind of moved in after the founding of the church and are beginning to lead people astray. And so he's he's reiterating that, that this message that Epaphras gives and has brought to them is the message that they need to hold on to precisely because it is the message not just about Christ, but from Christ. The one who is supreme and who is sufficient. He's setting him apart from these men that seek to distract them from Jesus to other things. Epaphras, just like the others, sends his warm greetings that sort of unfolding, you know, what I talked about hugs last week. A little touchy-feely, I know. But the point is that Epaphras continues to care greatly for them. This care for them is expressed in two ways that Paul mentions here. Paul says that he is struggling on their behalf. He's struggling just like Paul struggled for them. Colossians chapter 2 starts off with this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And so Paul was struggling on the behalf of these people, but he also wants them to know that Epaphras was right next to him, struggling as well for them. This word is the word we get agonize from. It can be translated into agonize. And so Paul and Epaphras are agonizing. They're straining. The word has that, uh, uh, it comes from the idea of the, the competitive games, you know, agonizing and straining for the victory, whether it's the long race and you're trying to get to the finish line or whether it's wrestling, because sometimes it can be translated wrestling. You know, you're, you're grappling with another human being and it's, it's a tiring, exhausting thing to do. Full contact. That's the kind of ministry that Paul is talking about for himself and for Epaphras. It's a full contact, tiring kind of ministry, and it's not just long hours. It's really the nature of the ministry itself. He's straining for this. Not only that, but Paul continues. He says, I can testify, I can bear witness of this fact that he has worked hard, meaning to toil to anguish over work that requires lots of energy. Epaphras is no slacker. He's fully engaged in what needs to be done for the well-being of Christ's church in Colossae. Even though he is separated by a sea, Epaphras continues to labor strenuously for these people. His agonizing work, I believe, was born of a great burden that was placed in him by Christ. And that burden has a name. It's called love. He had an incredible love for these brothers and sisters that he had first preached the message of Christ to. 
He sees himself, and let's, let's, let's be kind of clear about some of this stuff. Okay? Because some people have a burden because they have a Messiah complex. They think that they're the ones who are going to make everything okay, that, that they're the ones who, for instance, can come into a church and fix all the problems in the church. They don't recognize, perhaps because of their pride, that it is Jesus who is the one who has to come and fix the problems in the church, and that they might be an instrument for that. Okay, and so Epaphras does not have this vain idea of himself because he recognizes that he is a servant of Christ. He is not functioning out of a Messiah complex. He's trying to point them to the Savior just as Paul did. And so the message that Paul gives in this letter is the same one that that, uh, Epaphras was giving, and that is that Christ is supreme, not Paul, not Epaphras, That Christ is sufficient, not Paul, not Epaphras. And so a godly pastor understands that though he may labor hard, he is not supreme, he is not sufficient, but he is to point people consistently to the one who is, Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church, the firstborn over all of creation, the firstborn of the dead, the one who is the Savior of the church as a husband who laid down his life for it. And that is what motivates Epaphras to agonize. And he is not the only one. Second Corinthians 11. Paul is talking about the many things that he suffers for the gospel, the beatings, the starvations, the imprisonments, the slander. And then he says this, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul had a burden in his heart placed there by Jesus for the churches that he had planted. They were never far from his mind. And so he continued to be concerned about them and he continued to work for them. So pastors are called to love the flock so that the flock is never far from its mind. When a pastor's on vacation, he still thinks of his people, not just because prayer updates get sent to him via email, but that's where his heart is because of Christ. So pastors should love the flock and work hard, not as the savior of the flock, but as Christ's servant for the flock. And Paul continues to commend Epaphras to them for this reason, because he believes they have lost their way or they're in the process of losing their way because of the false teachers that have come and preached rituals and rules and regulations to them instead of Christ. It's sort of like Moses on the mountain when he learns, as we heard from Exodus 32, that the people are starting to go astray to leave the Lord their God who has redeemed them from Egypt and to pursue other things. He's heard this and so he agonizes for them. And Paul reminds them of one who faithfully served, who has the stamp of Jesus upon him. He's authorized 
Unfortunately, they seem to appreciate these false teachers. They didn't seem to appreciate their godly pastor. And that can happen in many places. I'm thankful that this is not one of those places. We, because we are sinful, prone to leave the Lord we love, as the song goes, we can often be distracted by gifts and underwhelmed by godliness. Now, we don't know, you know, about the personal charisma of Epaphras. He may have been very dynamic in his preaching, but what, what is going on in Colossae seems to indicate to me that he wasn't incredibly dynamic, just like Paul was not incredibly, incredibly dynamic. And these other guys probably were, just like in Corinth. We see the same problem. The dynamic super apostles come, and the people begin to think, well, Paul's not all that important, is he? He's not like these guys. They have presence. God is not impressed with presence. He's not about the gifts, but the godliness. When you have Steve Brown for a number of classes like I did, what happens is the stories start to repeat. <laughs> Such that I would know which one was coming by the first few words of the story. And one of the, one of the stories that sticks in my mind is a great story. They were always good stories. Just I heard them a lot. And he tells about going to do a conference in Montana and meeting the pastor and, and having worshiped with the pastor and, and kind of realizing this was, this was a very, if you're, if you're looking for a strong pulpit presence, this guy didn't have it. This guy was less than ordinary, so to speak, when it came to that aspect of ministry. But then they went for a walk in the woods, Steve says. And at some point, the man fell upon his knees, not by accident, but in prayer. And he realized the strength of the man's ministry was prayer, not his own gifts. He was a godly pastor, loved by his people, largely because he prayed for them. It was godliness that was important in his ministry, not so much his giftedness. And so the gospel of Christ that Paul preaches is one that produces this kind of zealous, godly ministry that Epaphras shared in. So we see that Jesus changes the hearts of pastors out of their self-love and into a love for the flock that is entrusted to them. Our second thing this morning. See, we're halfway there. Godly pastors pray their people into maturity. How was Epaphras struggling and working hard for the benefit of the Colossians from Rome? Paul says that he was actually struggling for them, agonizing for them in prayer. Prayer is sort of a full contact means of grace. There was someone in the church this week who emailed me, and they're, they're responding to an email I had sent earlier, and uh, they had typed two words, pray hard. There's no other way to pray if we take Paul seriously. To pray hard, it's hard work. 
It is the hardest work that a pastor can do, which is probably why so many pastors struggle with it. So many pastors have, uh, they don't pray as much as they ought. I'm one of those guys. It's hard work to focus on these things, to lay one's heart before God for the beha- on the behalf of other people. Prayer is probably the most neglected aspect of pastoral ministry, although hospital visitation seems to be getting close, too, sadly. Prayer, why is prayer so important to the work of a pastor? It's precisely because prayer is bringing those people to Jesus because you recognize that He is their Savior, He is their Lord, He is their Defender, and you're not. It's an expression of the fact that Christ is supreme and sufficient and the pastor isn't. The pastor who doesn't pray is the pastor who struggles with the Messiah complex, the, the, the sufficiency of self instead of recognizing perhaps the reality of Christ's sufficiency. The pastor who does pray is the one who, who knows that though those aspects of his ministry, the teaching, the counseling, uh, everything else, it won't really work It won't be effective and accomplish its real goal unless it's met with prayer. We're sort of praying the truth into people. Begging God that He would transform their minds by the truth. Remove the obstacles within and without so that this would happen. And so Paul, when he writes this to them, he wants to encourage them. He's not, well, he he sort of is putting him up on a pedestal so they can recognize that this is the man who really loves you. Those, Those false teachers don't really love you. This man does. But really, he's trying to encourage them with the knowledge that Epaphras is praying for them. I remember when I was in seminary. I made a trip home to New Hampshire for a weekend. And one of the senior saints came to me while I was there after the worship service. and She said, Steve, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. That encouraged me so much that I even started a sermon off with it once, talking about Christ's ministry of intercession on our behalf. The knowledge that people are praying for us does buoy us up. It does encourage us. And Mrs. Gay encouraged me with her prayers and the knowledge of her prayers. Epaphras' prayers are summarized by what is essentially a summary itself of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. He says in a couple of words, Paul does, what he said in that really large prayer in Ephesians Chapter 1. Once again, we're seeing the harmony between the two of them in message and in ministry. Epaphras had learned not only the message of Christ from Paul, but the means of ministry from Paul. We would be well to learn those as well. 
he starts off with this. It's going to be broken into two pieces. First, that you may stand mature. That word stand has that idea of being firmly established. And what's important here is that we recognize that standing is sometimes difficult. Sometimes we're standing in the midst of pressure. How many of you have ever tried to stand in high winds like a hurricane? Not so easy, is it? Depends on your weight, I guess. But There's Ephesians 6 kind of pressure that takes place. Paul says there, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. And yes, the Greek is the same word. That you might stand against the schemes of the devil. And so there's a standing in the presence and the pressure of an enemy for temptation and false accusation. Paul wanted them to stand. and that, So that's essentially part of what Epaphras is praying for. That they would be able to stand though Satan may buffet, though Satan may assault, though Satan may accuse, though Satan may tempt. He wants them to be able to stand firm. How is it that we stand firm? It's the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so they, they stand by the very gospel message that they have received, that message of Christ, God incarnate, obedient, Sacrifice for sinners, raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, which is right there in 1 Corinthians 15. Ascended into heaven, where he seats at the right hand of God the Father to pour out the blessings upon the church. As long as they, as they believe that, they, they, that makes them stand. That saves them. We see that as well in Romans chapter 11. This, that is true. We, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you meaning the Gentiles, stand fast through faith. And so we we begin to stand and stay standing through faith. The goal of this standing, the, the way in which we stand is maturity. That teleos, the goal, the end is maturity in Christ. This maturity is not sort of an accidental thing. We don't sort of drift into Christian maturity. But Christian maturity is the result of of intentional exercise of particular things, but that's not so much the focus here right now. But maturity requires energy. We know our kids are about to go through a growth spurt because they start eating like horses. They they already eat like horses, but they eat like two horses when they're ready for a growth spurt. We know, uh uh-oh, here it comes. Why? Because they require energy. For growth. Same way spiritually. We need spiritual food. We need to feast up so that we have the spiritual energy to grow in Christian maturity. 
D.A. Carson in his uh, book on Reformation notes that we need some of God's blessings constantly. And as we ask God for them constantly, so he constantly meets our need. That's where the prayer part comes in. Epaphras is constantly seeking God's blessings for them so that Christ would continually, constantly meet those needs that they have. I'm currently reading a book uh, by Jared Wilson. It's the one I started on Monday. And um, it's one of the two books I started Monday. And it's called The Pastor's Justification. And it's really about um, conducting your ministry in light of our justification through Christ alone, our righteousness uh, being Him. And so we're not, so it's, it's the challenge to, to not seek your justification through your preaching or through the growth of the church or how many buildings you have on the lot, you know, but reminding the pastor that his, his ministry is, is justified only in Christ, in Him crucified. But as I kind of was thinking of this in light of this particular passage, not, not Epaphras' justification, but his vindication, a different word, although it's tied to justification, his vindication from the perhaps slander of the false teachers, his vindication is intended to be the maturity of the Colossian Christians that he's praying for. A pastor's vindication is in the spiritual growth of the people he serves. And so while we might add buildings out there, that's not what it's all about. It's about the spiritual growth and maturity of the, of the people. And it must be prayed into them. So pastoral prayer and preaching are both essential to growth in ministry. Prayer, though, is that sort of unseen work that no one knows about unless they put a camera in your office, one of those little nanny cams. Okay, Please don't do that. Okay. Um, if I see something suddenly appear in my office, I'll wonder. Okay. But it's the unseen work. Secondly, he prays for them that they would be fully assured in the will of God. And here we have sort of a question. Because this word that's translated fully assured can have an objective meaning and a subjective meaning. Objectively, it could mean to carry out fully, meaning to fully carry out the will of God, to be obedient. But it can have a subjective meaning as well, which has that idea of being fully assured. Or you know, having a, a uh, sufficient knowledge, that cognitive rest that I sometimes speak about, about the will of God, knowing what God wants you to do. Oh, which one is it? Which one is Paul desirous of for these individuals? And I think I will say both. <laughs> because you must be fully convinced of the will of God if you're ever going to fully carry out the will of God. If you don't know what it is, you're not going to do it. I remember my work-study job at uh, RTS, my first one. For a little while, I was the golden boy. I don't know why. And I was given a task, and that task was to build a database. 
Now, for some of you, that would be really easy. Not for me. (laughs) I was told what to do, but had no knowledge of how to do it. So I was not, in a sense, fully assured of the will of my superior. Okay? And so I did not fully carry out the will of my superior. I lost my golden boy status that day. (laughs) Someone else who was able to do it got the golden boy status. And that's okay. I like Richard. Um, But they, they had to know it so that they could begin to fulfill it by the grace of God. And so he's, I believe, praying for both. Just as we saw in chapter 1, the knowledge of his will, but also the power to do it. Both of these coming from God as gifts of grace. And so maturity seen in this light has to do in part with growing in our convictions in order that we might then grow in our obedience. And so it's both. We need doctrine, but doctrine is useless until it is applied. And so Epaphras is praying for both of these things, just as Paul, earlier in the letter, prayed for both of these things. If we want to use different words, perhaps, that fit in with our mission statement, Paul is saying that they must grow in gospel understanding so that they can begin to grow in gospel practice. They're both important. You don't get the practice without the knowledge, and if all you get is the knowledge, you're not going to get very far. Paul and Epaphras weren't the only ones that kind of got this thing. They weren't the only ones praying for the Colossians. I'm not alone in praying for you. Hebrews 7, verse 25 which is one of the verses that is like always there for me because I need it so desperately. <laughs> Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'm sure that The Israelites, after the ordeal with the golden calf, were glad that Moses prayed for them. How much more should we be glad that Jesus prays for us? There's, I have no assurance that my prayers will be answered in the way I want them to be answered. (laughs) Jesus does. He's not distracted by other things. He lives forever to intercede for his people. And so as great as the intercession of a pastor is, as great as the intercession of Moses or Paul or Peter or Epaphras is, so much greater is the supreme and sufficient intercession of Jesus Christ for the sheep that he laid his life down for. So much greater is that. Christ in His heavenly ministry continues to intercede for us, praying us, not just individually, but corporately as a church, into maturity. If we're going to get there, it's not because of us, it's not because of me, it's because of Him. 
Not only in His work on the cross for us, but also His continuing prayer for His people. That ought to give us a whole lot of hope. A whole lot of encouragement. It does me. And so in fact, our prayers are not novel, but they echo His prayers. Precisely because it's the Holy Spirit who works in us when we don't know how to pray so that we're praying along God's will. This is important precisely because of what C.S. Lewis said in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. He talks about it towards the end where he says that God's goal is to make you perfect, and he means it. Sometimes we tend to think that God's goal is just to get us into Jesus so we're saved, you know, we're justified, we're going to heaven, we got our magic ticket, we're good, right? And, and C.S. Lewis reminds us that scripturally that's not the case. Things like uh, Romans eight twenty-eight and 29, he works all of these things for good, but that good is that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ, that he might be the first of many brothers. And so God's goal is to make you like Jesus. And if you're settling for anything less, you're not in line with what his purpose for you is, and you're going to be most likely frustrated and disappointed when he continues to accomplish his purpose in your life because it's often painful. Prayer. The prayer of Christ, the prayer of the pastors, the prayer of the people are essential for that to take place. And now, some of you might be thinking, is Steve purposely planning these sing and praise on the same day in which he pray, uh, preaches on prayers? And I will say, no, I had no, <laughs> I had no forethought to this. God works above us at times. It's a good thing for us to do tonight, to come and pray as we have the uh, ability to. Some of us, our schedules don't permit. But So, ministry, if it's done right, okay, is an exhausting line of work. It is a work that is driven by love, by a burden for the well-being of the people who are placed in your charge. And it is really only ultimately the gospel that can give a pastor this burden in a healthy, God-honoring way. Precisely because the gospel reminds us that we are not their saviors. Jesus is. And so much of our ministry is actually prayer, bringing them before Jesus to receive His blessings, not our blessings. And so what was the point for the Colossians and therefore for you? Ultimately, I believe it's to entrust yourself to the right kind of pastor, the kind of pastor who points you to Jesus and who brings you before Jesus. The others will lead you astray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this seemingly inconsequential greeting by a man who loved the church of Colossae because you had placed it in his heart. Father, I pray for us that you would continue to work through the ministry of the gospel here in its many forms, in preaching, Sunday school, men's and women's groups, 
community group, personal ministry, counseling, all the different ways in which the, the ministry of the gospel takes place here, that you would use them that we might stand firm in maturity. That we would be growing in the likeness of Christ. That we would become uh, increasingly assured of Your will and more fully obeying it. Father, help us to grow in our gospel knowledge and our gospel practice. Only You can make those connections by the Spirit in the hearts of people so that faith is transformed into life. And so, Father, continue to do that among us so that we really are a community that lives and stands and moves and breathes and acts and displays grace. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.